Father, we gather here today to honor you and to worship you for who you are. Not only for your goodness and your mercy and your graciousness towards us, but also your holiness, your righteousness, your your wrath that is poured out on the wicked. We thank you that you are just and that you won't let wickedness go unpunished. We pray as we look in your word and see examples of this, you'd give us hearts that trust you because of it and and see you as glorious and that we would uh, it would move us to worship you because of just how holy and just you are. I thank you for sending your son to absorb the wrath that was due to us. And may he be glorified this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please turn with me to the letter of Jude? Last week, um, we covered verses 1 through 4 of our letter. Uh, and, and just as kind of a recap or a summary, uh, he, he began by identifying himself uh, and his audience. We saw that Jude uh, was writing to the called of God, meaning every Christian. Jude then prayed a triune prayer of blessing uh, upon the called for, for mercy and peace and love to be multiplied to us. Jude then started off by saying that he had a desire to write concerning our common salvation, but that he felt it necessary to, to charge Christians to contend earnestly for the faith. This charge came because, in verse 4, he tells us that certain persons had crept in to the church unnoticed and were turning the grace of God into licentiousness. They were teaching that grace frees us up to live lives of unrepentant sin. And after that, Jude identifies these false teachers as the reason why we contend earnestly for the faith. And as we'll see this morning, he then proceeds to compare them to people in the past who have rebelled against God and His truth and were judged for it. And so this is where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, our, Our text will cover three events in history where God righteously judged those who didn't believe, who rebelled, and who committed gross immorality. And so what's interesting about these three examples that Jude gives us is that it covers all of God's intelligent creation. Jude first brings into remembrance the rebellion of God's people, the people of Israel. He then talks about the rebellion of angels and then the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah who were Gentiles. Human beings and angels are the only two beings created by God with an intelligent mind and a will that ought to obey God. Humans and angels are intelligent creation. We also know from the parable of the sheep and the goats that within the human race there are two classes, both sheep and goats. The sheep are God's people and the goats are unbelievers. 
The three examples that Jude uses to display the consistency of God's judgment towards sin are the Israelites who didn't believe, the angels who rebelled, and the destruction of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, God's people is the first, the angels are the second, and the Gentiles are the third. And so we see from this that God's justice, God's judgment is all-encompassing. All of intelligent creation is included in His examples. It includes both classes of human beings as well as the angels. Both God's people, Gentiles, and angels. And so this should communicate to us that the righteous judgment of God will be poured out on all who owe Him worship and obedience, yet rebel and do not. God's wrath is all-encompassing and unavoidable for all of those who rebel. And so the main point of our text this morning is the righteous judgment of God. We serve a God who is perfectly just. He's a thrice holy God who will not overlook even one transgression. And we'll see this morning that the reality of God's judgments throughout history are warnings and reminders of the true and final judgment of sin that will come on the last day. Jude reminds us of God's judgment in the context of contending for the faith. The false teachers had crept in and indeed remain today in the church. They live and teach things contrary to the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And so, what's Jude's point in reminding us of God's judgment in this context? It's so that we would not be swept away in their false doctrine. It's important that we're both aware of these false teachers and remember the judgment that awaits those who deny our Lord and follow after their teachings. False teachers are in the church. And their teaching, as well as their way of life, brings about the wrath of God. Always. It leads away from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So again, the main point of our text this morning is that God always righteously judges the wicked. So let's begin in verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. The first example that Jude gives us deals with Israel, God's covenant people of the Old Testament. Jude reminds us that after they were delivered out of slavery in Egypt, they did not believe, and this brought about God's judgment. In order to understand the sin of their unbelief, let's consider the story of Exodus. So, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years under Pharaoh's rule, waiting for God to deliver them. God indeed was gracious towards them and brought them out of their enslavement to the wicked Pharaoh. God used powerful signs and wonders and brought plagues upon the Egyptians to demonstrate His great power. 
Ten great plagues fell upon the people of Egypt, the last of which, worst of all, were the firstborn of every household died. This led to Pharaoh finally agreeing to let God's people go. And after Israel had left Egypt, God hardened Pharaoh's heart once more so that he had a change of heart towards the Israelites, the text tells us. He said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Pharaoh and his army pursued the people of Israel and trapped them against the Red Sea. And God miraculously parted the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry ground. While the Egyptians were in the middle of the Red Sea, God collapsed the walls of the water on them, destroying the army. And, and, and not only were the people of Israel uh, beneficiaries of this great deliverance, but they were also eyewitnesses to it. They were there. They saw it. God powerfully delivered them from the great nation of Egypt by His mighty hand, and they watched it happen before their eyes. After God delivered them, He brought them through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. This was the land that God had promised Abraham in Genesis 15. They then chose 12 spies, one man from each tribe, and sent them into the land to spy out the land. They were instructed to report back to the people whether the people of the land were strong or weak, whether they were few or mighty. They were to report whether the cities were open or fortified. Also, whether the land was fat or lean, and if it had trees on it. They were also asked to bring back some of the fruit of the land. When they returned, the spies reported that the land did indeed flow with milk and honey, and that there was plenty of fruit there. They also reported that the land was inhabited by strong people who had fortified cities. If you'll recall, ten of the twelve spies concluded not to enter into the land, saying, We are not able to go against the people, for they are too strong for us. Joshua and Caleb were the only two spies who trusted God and wanted to take the land. The people of Israel sided with the ten and decided that the land could not be taken, and then they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And in Numbers 14, 2-4, we read this. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. They, the people wanted to return to Egypt rather than enter into the land that God had promised them. Think about this for a second. This might be repetitive, but we really need to understand this. These people had seen God bring about great plagues upon Egypt in order to powerfully deliver them. They had seen the Nile turned into blood. They saw Egypt covered with frogs, then gnats, then flies. They saw Egypt's livestock die. Boils cover the Egyptian, the Egyptians in a massive hailstorm that killed every man and animal that was not under cover. 
They saw locusts cover Egypt so that you couldn't even see the ground. They ate everything that the hail had not destroyed. They saw a great darkness cover Egypt, a darkness that could be felt, the text says. They saw the firstborn of all the Egyptians die, their own children only spared because the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorposts. And each one of these plagues had significance to one or more of the Egyptian gods, false gods, and goddesses, so that God was not only demonstrating His power over the Egyptian people, but also their idols. It was as if God was saying, not only do I have power over you, Egyptians, but even your idols that you would cry to for help are nothing before me. I am Yahweh, the one true God. The people of Israel were then led out of Egypt to the Red Sea, and it was parted so they could walk through. And imagine walking through the sea, and there's two walls of water on each side of you. They saw this. Then they saw those walls collapse on the army of one of the most powerful nations that had kept them enslaved for 400 years, and God destroyed them in an instant. And they come to the, land, to the edge of the land of Canaan. And upon the report of the spies, the people of Israel's response isn't, so what if they're strong? Look at what God has already done for us. So what if their cities are fortified? Our God just defeated a great nation along with their gods. It doesn't matter how many people are in the land if our God is with us. That wasn't their response. Their response was, why did God bring us here just to die by the sword? And so all this to say, they didn't believe, but it wasn't because of a lack of evidence or a lack of signs. They had every reason to believe, but they didn't. They didn't trust that God was going to do what He said He was going to do. And so this brought about God's judgment upon them. This was the great sin of the people of Israel. So all of the fathers and mothers of Israel were forbidden by God to enter the promised land because of their rebellion and their unbelief. This was God's judgment upon them. They wandered in the wilderness until the last one of them died because of their unbelief. So after receiving a gracious deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the people of Israel rebelled against God through their unbelief and they were subsequently judged for it by being sentenced to die in the wilderness. That was God's judgment upon them, to die in the wilderness. You don't get to enter the promised land. This is Jude's first example of God's judgment for us to remember. A people graciously delivered from slavery through His power were judged by God for unbelief. Then the second example of God's judgment we find in verse 6. Verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So the, the second um, example that Jude gives us isn't in reference to human beings, but uh, angels, the rebellious angels. Um, 
I'll confess the difficulty of this passage. Uh, it, it was hard for uh, me to get a grasp on. It was confusing because of the, the, the disagreements surrounding it. But there are two primary views of what, this, what Jude's referring to. Um, the first is that the angels that he's referring to are the sons of God mentioned in Genesis chapter 6 who uh, took for themselves human wives. Um, I don't personally think that this is what Jude's talking about here. Uh, I do think that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are speaking of fallen angels, uh, but I don't think that's what Jude had in mind here uh, in this passage. Let me read Genesis uh, 6, 1-7 through and, and explain. Now it came about when the men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he, is, uh, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. And those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so if the great sin of this passage um, belonged first and foremost to the angels, it doesn't make sense to me that God would bring about judgment upon mankind and not even mention angels being judged in this passage. If this was their great rebellion, this, uh, this passage... They're not even mentioned here. Um, if this is what both Jude and Peter, because Peter mentions it in Second Peter 2, if they're referring to this, then why is it, I, the wickedness of man is great. Uh, I regret that I've made man. My spirit shall not strive with man. He's, he's pouring out judgments upon mankind because of mankind's wickedness. And also, in order for uh, these angels to even take wives for themselves, they would have had to already left their proper abode beforehand. This is what uh, Jude mentions as their or cites as their great rebellion. Uh, scripture tells us that the angels dwell in heavenly places, so in order to appear before and take wives among men, they would have already had to left their left their proper abode. And so I think that this view presupposes a prior rebellion of the angels uh, where they did abandon their proper abode, uh, which brings us to the second view of what this passage means. And the second view is that Jude is referring to the rebellion of some of the angels uh, when Satan fell. Uh, I tend to prefer this view, even though it's a little bit more of a mysterious view. Uh, we don't have a lot to go off of with this view. Uh, we, we have texts like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 uh, that most people agree have reference to Satan falling from heaven and rebelling against God. Uh, and then from there we can uh, assume that there was some angels that rebelled with him. 
and they were also cast out of heaven, but this is largely based on inference. And so, like I said, I prefer this view because the first doesn't seem to work, but I have to conclude that we, we don't know for sure exactly what um, exactly what Jude's talking about, what specific incident Jude's talking about uh, here. The, the Genesis 6 view has the most Scripture behind it, but it doesn't seem to line up well with the main judgment falling on mankind. And the second view lines up better and gives us an explanation for how the angels could have been among the men in Genesis 6, uh, but there's not a lot of biblical support for it. And it's also highly possible that Jude had a non-canonical book in mind. We know that he quotes the book of Enoch and the Testament of Moses uh, in, in his letter, which were non-biblical books, non-canonical books. And both these books that he quotes from were popular retellings of biblical accounts. So Jude could very well be pulling from one of those uh, retellings or another retelling that expounded upon one of the texts dealing with the angels. But I will submit that it's not necessary for us to identify with absolute certainty which specific act of rebellion Jude is talking about. The main thing is that we understand that the angels did rebel. They acted in defiance to God and they were judged for it. They had their own domain, their their proper abode, and they abandoned it. This is what we know from Jude's text. They left it. They refused to remain in the place that God had designated for them. And so look at the results of this rebellion in the second half of verse 6. He, God, has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. When the angels rebelled, God designated them a place of darkness until the final judgment. Just like in the case of the Israelites, when sin and rebellion takes place, God will bring judgment. God cannot allow for sin to go unpunished. His very essence demands it. As the standard of goodness and justice, He cannot allow unrighteousness to go unpunished. That would be the definition of unrighteousness. And we see this theme again in the second example with the angels that rebellion against God brings about consequences. It brings about judgment. The theme is the same, although the recipients changed. The first example was God's covenant people. The second was angels in heaven. And the theme will continue now in Jude's third example, where God judged the Gentiles. Look with me at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude brings to remembrance the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah for their immorality, especially sexual immorality. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around it 
were known for their rampant wickedness and rebellion against God. We read in Ezekiel 16:49 and 50, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus, they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. We see that the people were arrogant. They looked down on others as less than themselves, acting as if there was something good in them, something good about them. Boasting in themselves and their deeds as one should only boast in God and His deeds. This arrogant people also had abundant food and ease. They had more than enough. They had a surplus of food and they didn't have to work hard to get it because they had ease. Their lives were easy and free from physical discomforts. They were full to the brim with worldly lusts. All the things the world had to offer, all the good, common gifts that God gives to man, that man so often perverts and turns into an idol. They had an abundance, but, the text says, they did not help the poor and needy. These people were greedy with their abundance. They were empty of compassion, but abundant in resources. The poor and needy suffered because of their greed. Just like what's true of many rich people, the more riches and ease they had, the tighter they squeezed onto it. As they would accumulate more and more food and riches, their hand would grasp tighter and tighter to it. Their arrogance also would surely cause them to scoff at the poor instead of sacrificing their abundance to help them. And so these, we see, are the opposite of godly men and women. They were arrogant, they were greedy, they were uncharitable, they were haughty, and they were idolaters. This is all true of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're guilty of all these sins. But the sin that they're most known for was sexual immorality, and as Jude tells us, specifically homosexuality. Genesis 19, when God had sent two angels in the appearance of men to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot invited them to stay with him. And so we see a contrast, right, between the greedy and unhospitable character of the people of Sodom. Lot desired to be kind to them. But when the men of the city saw these angels in the form of men, they came to Lot's house to try to force these angels to have intercourse with them. The text in Genesis is clear that all the men, both young and old, came in agreement. This shows that in the city it wasn't a minority problem. This kind of behavior was normal even among young men in Sodom. And so this shows us the deep depravity that was taking place in Sodom. It wasn't as if there were a few fringe people engaging in homosexuality. No, it was 
all the men, both old and young. They all had the same unquenchable lust for strange flesh, as Jude tells us, that they came out of one accord to force themselves upon these angels in the form of men. And so the text goes on, Lot desiring to protect these angels, uh, hid them inside of his house. And we read in Genesis 19.5 that the men asked Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. And Lot begged the people of the city not to act wickedly, but they pressed on the door, almost breaking it. It wasn't until the angels struck all these men blind that they finally stopped. We read in verse 11 of Genesis 19, they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they, they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. So it wasn't even the blindness that made them stop to make them give up. They, After receiving blindness, they continued to look for the door until they became weary, and only at that point did they give up. And so we see just how wide this sin had spread in the number of people that came to Lot's house and also the depth of, its, of the lust of the people in that they didn't stop trying to commit this sin until they tired themselves out from trying to find the door. This displays for us the universal acceptance, normalization, and widespread practice of homosexuality, in, or, which was the main uh, reason why God chose to destroy the city and to make them an example of the punishment of eternal fire, as Jude says. Jude points out how they were indeed an example of the judgment of God throughout all of Scripture. It's, it's the most referenced story of God's judgment in all of Scripture. It's mentioned again and again and again in, in reference to other wicked cities or wicked people as a reminder of the wrath of God that will come upon disobedience. The fact that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were not only destroyed by fire and brimstone on the earth, but are also subjects of the eternal punishment serves as an example that God will judge the wicked, not only in this life, but also in the age to come. Eternally. As I mentioned before, these three examples cover all of God's intelligent creation. The first example was God judging the covenant people. The second was the angels rebelling. And then the third was the Gentiles in Sodom and Gomorrah. We have God's people under judgment. Angels under judgment. And Gentiles who are not God's people under judgment. Both human beings and angels owe God obedience. And when they choose to rebel against Him, they will be judged. No creature created for worship and obedience can escape the judgment that rebellion will bring about. And this is Jude's point this morning to remind us of the history of God's judgment upon the rebels, 
This brings us to our application this morning. I'll submit two points to consider. The first is, what is your attitude towards God's judgment? Ask yourself what your attitude is towards God's judgment. Are you inclined to praise God for demonstrations of His justice? Does it give you a higher view of God and a deeper love for Him? It's a good thing that God is unchangeably just. It's a good thing. Imagine for a second if the all-powerful God of the universe was not just. Imagine if God was an unjust being. The world would be chaos. Absolute chaos. People would be free to hurt and abuse others without any sort of repercussion, any sort of justice. There'd be none. God Himself, if He was unjust, would be free to abuse creation Himself. But praise be to God that He's not unjust. Praise God that He will not let the guilty go unpunished. God is the only true and perfect judge, always righteous in His judgments. This should lead us, brothers and sisters, to worship. Consider with me one of John's visions from the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, 1-4, we read this. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with him, her immorality. And He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. The great multitude of saints here praise God for His judgments upon the great harlot because she was corrupting the earth. They glorified God through their praises because God acted justly in the destruction of the wicked. And so we must ask ourselves, is this our attitude towards God's judgment? Are we inclined to praise God for them? Do we see them as displays of His perfect holiness? This ought to be our attitude. To quote the Puritans, the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. The same God who we praise for His graciousness towards us is the same God who brings judgment upon the wicked. And so again, the first application this morning is to examine ourselves. To see whether or not this is our view of God's judgments. The second point of application 
is to use uh, to use the reality of God's judgment to motivate our, ourselves to contend for the faith. To use the reality of God's judgments to motivate us to contend for the faith. Our passage this morning is indeed concerned with God's judgments, but it's not without a context. Jude brings these accounts to our remembrance in the context of contending for the faith. That was his charge to us. False teachers are among us today. In the same way that they were among the church in Jude's day, they remain with us today. They teach things that are contrary to the faith and they lead other people into rebellion against God. This is Jude's purpose in bringing up these stories. To remind us that the only end for false teachers and those who follow them is judgment. To believe things that are contrary to the gospel is to possess no gospel at all and therefore have no hope. The truth of the gospel, once for all handed down to the saints, must be contended for because without faith in it, we will all be judged eternally. Think about it. What is the only thing that separates you this morning from the judgment of God? It's faith in the gospel. It's the gospel. That's the only thing. And without faith in the gospel, we have no more hope than the unbelieving Israel or the fallen angels or the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're no better before a thrice holy God than they are. We've all rebelled. We've all sinned. We've all gone astray. And yet, through the gospel, once for all handed down to the saints, we are given forgiveness that satisfies the wrath of God. Because we trust in the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints, we've been given Christ's very righteousness. Consider Psalm 75, verse 8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. All the wicked must drink down God's wrath. This is the punishment that we all deserve. Every fallen son and daughter of Adam. Yet Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane sweats drops of blood in fear for what was about to come upon Him. He prays, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Yet not as I will, but as You will. This cup wasn't the physical agony that he was going to endure. The cup wasn't the insults and the mockery. The cup wasn't even the nails or the spear. The cup was the wrath of Almighty God. The cup from which Psalm 75 tells us that we must drink down. Yet because Christ drank it down on our behalf, on behalf of all who believe, we stand forgiven. This is why we contend for the faith. This is why 
We fight against false doctrine. This is why we keep the gospel pure. Because by trusting in it, we're forgiven. The faith must be contended for because when the faith is distorted or perverted, it leaves people with nothing but the cup of God's wrath. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, let us praise God for His judgments upon the wicked, but also resolve to contend earnestly for the faith that brings about our forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your just judgments. I thank You that You won't let any sin go unpunished. I thank You that You in Your wisdom decreed the cross where Your justice and Your mercy meet and where Christ drank down the cup of wrath that was reserved for us. I pray that You would help us to be contenders of the faith. Help us to do everything we can to keep the message once for all handed down pure. Because it's only through that message that any of us can be forgiven. We thank You for Your mercy and Your grace towards us. And we thank You for Your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.